Well, as you heard, uh, we're in a series in money, and uh, each week we have been looking at a particular passage of the Bible and then seeking to understand what that passage has to say, but often doing it through the lens of, you know, what light does it shed on another topic? And so we've thought together about wealth, thought together about discipleship, about saving, about giving. Today I want to think with you about investing. Now, I know that uh, in this room and perhaps online, we'll have people with kind of both ends of the spectrum of that kind of concept. Uh, some of you will get super excited about this because this is your jam. Uh, you love thinking about investing. You love talking about investing. You love investing. It's what you spend your nights doing. If it's not something you get paid for during the day and you do it during the day as well. Others of you, that's not really where you're at. Uh, you may or may not uh, own your own home, but you've never personally invested in things like shares or property with the aim of making a profit, right? You don't see yourself as an investor. Here's the thing, though. If you have any money in super, I realise not all of us may have a super, but, but if you have any money in super, you are an investor. You may not be a particularly passionate one, uh, but whether you realise it or not, you're paying an annual fee to your super fund to invest your money and increase your wealth. That's what someone who invests in a managed fund does. The only difference between you and the managed fund is that you can't access the capital until you're 55 to 60, depending on how old you are, or when you're born, sorry. And so again, most of us will probably be investors of one kind or another. It's also worth saying that if you are a Christian here today, if you're not welcome, by the way, but if you are, then you'll also want to know what does God's Word have to say about investing. And I want to stress this because it could be that you're here today and you think, oh, like, why are we thinking about investing? How worldly? Surely, uh, you know, in church, we're supposed to think about spiritual things like Jesus and the gospel and look... As a matter of first importance, spot on. Yes, you're right, so just hold your horses because we're definitely going to get there, I assure you. But it's not ungodly, uh, nor I think is it immature to think about what the Bible has to say on all areas of life, including investing. See, if you never ask these kinds of questions or you assume that the Bible is almost too holy to touch on some of these things and how to think about it, then you run the risk of having a fragmented faith and not integrating your faith into every area of your life. Uh, at worst, failing to address this topic can sometimes lead us almost to live a double life. You know, as if you know, maybe we're kind of pretty clear on what God expects of us and how to think, and we kind of attribute that to, that's my Sunday life. But then, well, I don't really know how being a Christian impacts my work life or my financial matters, and so I'm just a total pagan in that area. Again, I think it's important for us to address this topic today, but... When you ask the question, what does, God's word, what does God's Word have to say on investing? That's where things get a little tricky, maybe even a little interesting. You see, if you ask Google that question, what does the Bible have to teach on investing? Uh, a lot of the time, the articles that will come up will take you to the parable of the talents or the parable of the bags of gold. That's the passage we had read out for us. And it will try to draw out some principles from that. And so... For example, during the week, I read an article that praised the master in the story for being a wise investor because his investment strategy had long-term horizons and it included strategic asset allocation like diversification, waiting and reporting. Now, the reality is there is truth to that observation. 
right? At least according to those measures, the master is a good investor. But that's not the point of the parable. In fact, to turn the parable into a case study on investing not only runs the risk of undermining the story, it actually, and I think more significantly, uh, blinds us to the profound and I think paradigm-shifting view of life that this whole parable gives us. And so with that in mind, uh, today I do want to study the parable of the talents, but we're not going to mine it for investment principles. Rather, I'm going to end up preaching a message in two halves. In the first half, we're going to ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about being a good and faithful investor? We will ask that question and seek to address it. But then in the second half, we're going to come to the parable and ask, what does the parable have to teach us about being good and faithful servants? See, as we'll see today, there is a difference between being a good and faithful investor and a good and faithful servant. Now, there is overlap, but they're two different things, and actually, God calls us to one, not the other. So let's jump in. Number one, how to be good and faithful investors. How to be good and faithful investors. Well, uh, I'm sure there's a bunch that you could say on this, but uh, I want to give you three thoughts. The first one will be how to be a good investor. The second two will be how to be a faithful investor. So I'm kind of splitting that up, uh, at least for this under this heading. So number one, a good investor takes heed of biblical wisdom. A good investor takes heed of biblical wisdom. Uh, you might recall a couple of weeks back we looked at the book of Proverbs and we noticed that biblical wisdom takes for granted that God has created an ordered world and then it looks at God's world and it notices patterns. Biblical wisdom then calls us to live in light of those patterns. And so the good investor, the wise investor, will be one who takes notice and invests in line with these principles. And so, for example, we saw this a couple of weeks back, but Proverbs highlights the value of patience. Patience. And so uh, Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gathered hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Right, Proverbs is constantly telling us, beware of the get-rich-quick schemes. And so maybe, for example, your brother's uncle's friend tells you that some stock is about to boom, or your auntie's neighbour promises you 20% ROI if you finance her venture, or the spruker on Facebook promises instant equity and double-digit growth. Now, it could be. You know, you roll the dice, you get the win, and you see an increase. But if something looks too good to be true, it often is. And so Proverbs advises us, just have patience. Uh, play the long game and gather little by little rather than trying to get quick. Second kind of principle of you know, biblical wisdom would be uh, diversification. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11.2 says, invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight, you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Uh, this comes in a section of Ecclesiastes where the author is talking about the unpredictability of God's world. It's kind of, it's funny, um, Proverbs notices all the consistent things. Um, Ecclesiastes, in some ways, notices the exceptions. But there is a pattern of exceptions, in that things, you know, the weather, for example, is consistently unpredictable. And so sometimes, investors get so passionate about one asset class or industry that they go all in in a big way. And again, sometimes it pays off. 
but it can also bring big losses and have devastating consequences, right? At the end of the day, only God knows the future. All the signs of growth and potential may be there, but you just never know when the next black swan event is going to occur. And so if you had asked me in January 2020 whether I thought office space or face mask was going to be a better investment, I probably would have told you office space. But then COVID hits and we all work from home and face masks become the most in-demand product of the year, uh, closely followed by toilet paper. <laughs> Again, you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And so it's arrogant, actually, to pretend that you do and therefore to throw all your financial eggs in one basket. Now, uh, I promised that I wouldn't draw any investment principles from the parable of the talents, but I can't resist this one, so bear with me. Uh, as you heard, the master has a total of eight bags of gold, or at least that's all we're taught about. And so he gives uh, five to the first guy, he gives two to two, the second one, and the last one, he just gives one. And then the last one takes that one bag of gold, which is one-eighth of the master's total wealth that we know of. He digs a hole and he hides it in the ground. Do you know what the Greek word for hide is? Crypto. That's where we... <laughs> That's where we get crypto from. And who says the Bible has nothing to say on investment principles? Hey, clearly the moral to the story is diversify and put one eighth of your policy of your money in crypto. No, it's not. It's not. I assure you. Uh, and the only reason for wasting your time on that is because I want to illustrate the importance of the last principle under this first heading, and that's the importance of wise counsel. Wise counsel. Now, Proverbs fifteen twenty two says, "Plans fail for lack of counsel." But with many advisors, they succeed. Right? Some of you will have a level of expertise in the world of investing, but most of you won't. I certainly don't, so please just ignore my comments about crypto. I'm still not even sure what it is. <laughs> but if you don't know what you're doing, like me, Proverbs would say, don't go it alone. Our plans fail for lack of counsel. And so if you're looking to invest, why not do the wise thing and get some advice? Uh, Terry... Uh, Terry Cave from Faith and Finance Seminar last week is one option, but there are lots of financial advisors, and ideally, I think, get a Christian one. Uh, don't launch in and foolishly assume you know what you're doing. So there you have, excuse me, a uh, few principles of biblical wisdom on how to be a good investor. Right? Good investors are patient, they diversify, they seek out wise counsel. But look, at the end of the day, you can be a good investor and still be a pagan. And so what does the Bible say about being a faithful investor, a Christian investor? Uh, well, let me add two more thoughts to it. Number two, a, a faithful investor guards themselves against greed. A faithful investor guards themselves against greed. You see, the, the number one question you need to be able to answer when it comes to investing is why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? I'll qualify this later, but the driving motivation in most investments is the desire to generate a profit. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, after all, some people want to generate a profit because they want to use the profit to pay their living expenses, to save reasonably for retirement, or to be generous, maybe even to fund ministry. Well, those are all great reasons to invest, and I think a large part of that is why our super funds have been set up. Where you get in trouble is when you invest out of greed and discontentment. 
Now, if you were with us uh, two or three weeks ago, I can't remember now, we talked practically about how to put guards in your life against discontentment and greed. And so if you want to uh, think about a wealth finish line, a spending finish line, going uh, two weeks back, I think it was. Uh, but for now, just, just have a quick read. We won't major on this, but have a read of 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 9. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Right? The ruin and destruction he's talking about there is often both financial and uh, spiritual. In other words, the greedy person often makes a shipwreck both of their faith and their finances. Now, Matt's going to touch on that uh, in a much bigger way next week because he'll talk through that passage but I guess it, it might just be worth reflecting on your motivations if you are someone who loves to invest. Right, why are you doing it? Is, is it to get rich or is it to give richly? Is, is it to increase your standard of living or is it to increase your standard of giving? Uh, Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap that plunges people into destruction. So don't fall into the trap. Be a faithful investor and guard yourself against greed. If you can't do that, maybe you shouldn't be investing. Third, third and finally, faithful investors seek God-glorifying outcomes. Faithful investors seek God-glorifying outcomes. Uh, so far, we've focused particularly on the, kind of the motives and the methods, if you like, of our investing, but I haven't said too much about the kinds of things that Christians should invest in. Now, I'm not going to give you, you know, specific postcodes or companies or anything like that. But I think it's helpful just to be aware, if this is your jam, of three different categories that are often used in the Christian literature on investing. Uh, the first is negative screening. Negative screening. Uh, negative screening refers to actively avoiding any industry or organization that contradicts Christian values or supports those who do. And so, for example, m most Christians probably wouldn't, and I think shouldn't, feel comfortable uh, investing in, for example, you know, the gambling industry or you know, certain pharmaceutical companies that um, promote and you know, enable things like abortion and euthanasia. The thing is, uh, even if you wouldn't go out and directly buy a share in that company, you might actually be invested in them unknowingly through your super or your managed fund, or an ETF. Uh, now, that's a problem. Why? Well, because Christian investing isn't just about returning a profit. Right? Again, that's how pagans invest. If you're genuinely going to integrate your faith and your finances, you actually have to think about the things that you're investing in, uh, either directly or indirectly, and avoid those things that don't glorify God and promote human flourishing. Now, I'm aware that's sometimes easier said than done. So, for example, uh, I'm with uh, an organization called Anglican Super. And so I logged on to the website this week to try and figure out where am I invested in. Uh, try as I might, I couldn't figure it out. So I sent them an email. They said they'd get back to me in two business days. They did. I followed up where they sent me and I still don't know what I'm invested in. <laughs> so I'll try again. But even if you, like me, have never at least personally bought shares in your life, you can at least do that much. Why not go home today, see what your super fund is invested in, and make sure they're actually seeking God-glorifying outcomes. If they're not, move somewhere else. Second of all, positive screening. 
uh, positive screening. This is basically the opposite of negative screening. It's all about investing in businesses that do good and align with Christian values. Now, they don't have to be Christian companies, they don't have to uh, be run by Christians, uh, but they're businesses that promote human flourishing and the love of neighbour. Uh, if you want an example of a bunch of faith-driven mutual funds and ETFs, uh, go on the Faith Driven Investor website, Faith Driven Investor. There's some examples there. But the last category uh, is uh, similar to positive screening. It's called impact investing. Impact investing. This is where you focus uh, much more on the spiritual sometimes the social, sometimes even kind of the environmental outcome of an investment uh, rather than just the financial one. So a good example would be something like microfinance. Uh, those who invest in microfinance, they, they are seeking to get a positive you know, financial return, but they're also seeking to do good. They're, they're trying to make capital available for people in developing countries to grow their businesses. But if, invent, if, investing, inventing, if investing is a big part of your life, if that's your jam, and you haven't already thought about the concept of in impact investing, why not explore it a little more? Because it may enable you to actually take a God-given gift and passion and then use it with God-glorifying outcomes. All right. There's a couple of reflections on being good and faithful investors. Good investors take heed of biblical wisdom, but more importantly, faithful investors guard themselves against greed and then seek to do it in a way that glorifies God. But now let's get to the heart of the matter. Because how do you be a good and faithful servant? And what's the difference? How do you be a good and faithful servant? Well, one of the reasons I wanted to spend the first half of our time thinking about investors is that I wanted to get each of us inhabiting the persona of an investor. In other words, I wanted us to focus on generating a return. You see, uh, even if we you know, have good motives and uh, practice screening our investments, the fact remains that one of the primary drivers for all investors is to generate a financial return. Uh, now, sure, uh, that may not be the highest or even the, um, it may not be the only, sorry, or even the highest priority, particularly in the realm of impact investing, but for something to be an investment, at least in the traditional sense of the word, you're seeking a financial outcome, a kind of a positive outcome. Otherwise, it's a gift. And so in that realm, you are seeking some kind of financial return. So with that in mind, have a thought experiment with me. Imagine you go through your entire working life, 40 years, 45 years, 50 years, whatever it is, and you entrust all of your wealth to your super fund, or your uh, only to hit retirement age and discover that they put it in a safety deposit box. How are you feeling? You'd be frustrated, wouldn't you? And rightly so, because not only have they failed to put what Einstein called, you know, the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest, no, not only have they failed to increase your assets, they've actually, you've gone backwards because they didn't, you know, hedge against inflation, you, you've gone backwards. And so you're feeling angry, you're feeling exasperated, you're feeling vengeful. Well, hold on to that thought for a moment. Why? Because the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 is all about an investor. The thing is, the investor in the parable doesn't represent people like you and I. It represents Jesus. Uh, people like you and I are just the servants. We're, we're, we're the, the fund managers put in charge of getting a return on his investments. 
What's more, the parable makes it clear that Jesus is going to return one day and settle his accounts. And when he does, the good news is that for those of us who've proved ourselves to be faithful, there is the hope of promise and hope, sorry, there's a promise and hope of eternal joy. But the warning of the parable is that for those of us who do the spiritual equivalent of putting Jesus' wealth in a safety deposit box, things are going to look very different. All that to say, the key lesson of the parable is not that we should be good and faithful investors, but that we should be good and faithful servants. And so let's ask the question, what exactly does that mean? What are the marks of a good and faithful servant? Well, let me give you three from the passage. Number one, good and faithful servants know that everything they have belongs to their master. Good and faithful servants know that everything they have belongs to their master. Read with me from Matthew 25, verse 14. Jesus says, this is in a string of parables about the kingdom of heaven, so I've just kind of made it clearer. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. Three words I just want you to notice in there. First, entrusted. That's a really important word to remember. When you give your money to the super fund, you're not gifting it to them. You're entrusting it to them. That's what the master does with his wealth. We have to give it back to him one day and we'll be held accountable for how we use it. Second, it's his. Sorry, I was after the other one. It's, it's his wealth. Right? Everything we've been entrusted with is his. What that means is that, strictly speaking, there is only one investor. Let me say that again. Strictly speaking, there is only one investor in the whole universe. It's Jesus, it's God. Uh, you and I are servants. We're, we're stewards, we're, we're fund managers. We've been entrusted with the master's wealth, but it still belongs to him. And then lastly, that word servants. Uh, literally, that word is slave. We'll come back to that later because it's important, I think. But at least for now, what that means is that the job we've been left with isn't optional. We're not employees of the super fund who can say, you know what, I feel like I want to do something different with my life. No, we're slaves. We don't have a choice in the job we've been given. This is the job the master has given us. We'll think about what that job is in uh, a moment. Suppose we ask, all right, well, what exactly is the wealth we've been trusted with. Because uh, verse 15 says, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Now the NIV here, it's a translation of the Bible, uses the language of bags of gold, but the Greek word is talenton, and so that's why this parable is sometimes called the parable of the talents, or other translations will refer to it as talents. The thing is, None of Jesus' first hearers would have thought he's talking about natural abilities there. Now, the reason for that is that a, a talent was a unit of measurement, uh, or, uh, sorry, a unit of measuring weight. So it's about 60 kilos. And so therefore, a talent of money, it's quite a significant amount of money if, you have, if it's gold, right? it's maybe the modern day equivalent or ancient equivalent of uh, a million bucks. But again, what does it mean? What does it represent? What are the talents? Well, some people think it's the seed of the gospel. I actually quite like that idea. 
the problem that I see, though, is that you know one gets five, one gets two, and the other gets one. And so it, it's just it's a little tricky to see, how, do we get different portions of the gospel? Uh, other people think it's referring to our natural abilities. Uh, in fact, this is actually where the English word talent comes from. That word, kind of the etymology, actually comes back to this story. It's one of those funny occasions. The challenge with that view is that the parable says that each servant receives the talent according to his ability. So that one doesn't really seem to work out either. In the end, I think it's best to understand the talents as referring to everything we have without trying too carefully to pin it down to a specific thing. In other words, it's not not about the gospel. It's not not about our abilities. It's not not about our wealth either. It's about all of that and more. Uh, as one author puts it, it's about our personality, our position, and our possessions. Our personality, our position, our possessions. Again, it's about everything. At the end of the day, though, uh, again, I'm not too concerned with pinning down exactly what they are. Because I think as, as you keep reading, what's more important is what you do with them and whether it's in line with the master's wishes. And so secondly, good and faithful servants seek to increase the master's assets. Good and faithful servants seek to increase the master's assets. Now, uh, it's worth saying that the master never explicitly tells the servants to increase his assets, but it, it's pretty clear from the story that that's what he's after. And so, for example, when he comes back, uh, this is what we read of the first servant. It says, the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. And what does the master respond? Well done, good and faithful servant says the same thing to the guy that brings his two plus two to four. And when the guy, the last guy, brings just his one, what does the master say? Wicked and lazy. Again, he clearly wants a return on his investment. But suppose we ask, well, what exactly does it mean to increase the master's assets? Well, the parable doesn't tell us that specifically. And so, as you can imagine, there's no shortage of ideas out there. Uh, one idea, kind of at the popular level, is that it's talking about developing our potential, you know, developing our gifts, if you like. And look, I, I do think there is a seed of truth to that idea, so I'm not going to write it off. But if you play it out to its logical conclusion, it gets a little weird. So think it through. Imagine standing before Jesus and saying, Jesus, you gave me the talent of leadership. And I multiplied that gift. I, I invested in that gift. I increased that gift such that by the end of my life, I was a really good leader. Or imagine getting to the last day or meeting Jesus and saying, Jesus, you gave me five talents worth of athleticism. <clears throat> and so by the end of my life, I had so used that that I... You know, won the WSL surfing title five... A guy can dream, can't he? A guy can dream, a guy can dream. Look, I, I, I multiplied it. I hope something about that seems a little bit off. As if, okay, yeah, but you're kind of missing a, a core part of what Jesus is getting at. 
I think you, you see a similar thing uh, for those who uh, view the parable through the lens of finances. So, so again, so someone might say, the parable says I need to be a good steward, that includes God's money, and so I want to invest it wisely and double it before Jesus returns. You know, one has five, they get ten, the two, get four. Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. But again, play it out. Imagine Jesus comes back and you, you, Jesus, you, you say, Jesus, you gave me two million, here's four back. What's he going to say? Well, I can imagine Jesus asking the question, what am I going to do with that? Your job wasn't to increase my portfolio of Australian dollars. What use is that going to be in the new creation? You might as well have gone and put it in the ground. Your job was to use those dollars for kingdom impact so that when I got back, there were more people that I could bring into the kingdom. See, Grace City... When the master returns, the kingdom of God will be consummated and Jesus will take his faithful servant with him into the new creation. And so he wants us, he wants us to give our attention now to what we might call increasing his new creation assets or his kingdom assets. What are they? Well, first and foremost, I think that's talking about seeing more people come to know and trust in Christ. In other words, the primary thrust of the parable is that we're supposed to use everything we have, our personality, our position, our possessions, the seed of the gospel, our abilities, our wealth, everything we have to see more people come to know Christ and trust in Him. And just as an aside, that's why we're planting this new uh, campus next year. Is it the best time to do it next year? Is it a guaranteed success? Well, truth is, we don't know. It's like investing. There's a degree of risk. But at the same time, we know what the Master has told us to do. Increase the kingdom assets. See more people come to know Christ. And so the last thing we want to do is for Jesus to say, wicked and lazy. Secondly, Jesus wants to, us to give ourselves to the work of growing people in Christ. You see, godliness lasts into eternity. Godliness lasts into eternity. When you or someone you sow into becomes more loving, more kind, more patient, more generous, more servant-hearted, you're reaping an eternal harvest. Why would... Yes, even though when Jesus returns, we will be transformed, the Bible is constantly calling us to become who we already are in Christ and will become in the new creation. So my encouragement to each of us is to consider doing a portfolio review. How are you going at increasing the master's assets? Or at least seeking to be faithful in doing that job. We're not employees who can move on and get a different job if we don't like this one. We're slaves of Christ and he's given us a job to do. Again, it's not our job to reach our potential or double our net wealth is to use our potential and our wealth and everything else for that matter to gather more and more people into the kingdom and then grow them to maturity in Christ. That's the job of the faithful servant. Now, you might hear all that and feel a little burdened, perhaps even overwhelmed. You might look at you know, the Apostle Paul or the Billy Graham or, or, or someone else and go, oh my goodness, look at all they're doing. I, I, my, my portfolio's got nothing in it. 
But you've got to remember, Jesus isn't going to compare your fruit with theirs. What he wants to see is that you have actually been faithful with what he has entrusted to you. Not what is entrusted to someone else, what is entrusted to you. That's why he says the exact same thing to the guy who goes from five to ten as to the guy who goes from two to four. Both here, well done, good and faithful servant. The problem with the guy who had one talent wasn't that he didn't produce five or two or even one for that matter. It's that he didn't even try. He didn't try. Instead, he buries it in the ground. He could have at least put it on in the bank and got some interest. So again, it's worth doing a midpoint review of the master's portfolio under your care and asking the question, am I being faithful? Notice I didn't say fruitful, by the way. Am I being faithful? Now, it's not that fruitfulness is unimportant, but you cannot directly control fruitfulness. Again, it's like investing. There are good things to invest in and bad things to invest in, but you can do all the right stuff and still see no fruit. You can't control it, but you can influence it. What you can control is, am I being faithful with what God has given me? That's the second thing. Third and final thing before we wrap up. Faithful servants long to share in their master's happiness. Faithful servants long to share in their master's happiness. Given how the parable ends, it's kind of easy to miss how wonderfully good this master is. And so, for example, uh, look again at what the master says to his first and second servant. Verse 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Just as an aside, a few things. You had five million bucks. <laughs> he turned it. Here's a real job. Wow, this master is loaded. But he's also good because he says, come and share your master's happiness. Come and share your master's happiness. Other translations will say, enter into the joy of your master. That's not how a hard man treats his servants. No, the last servant, the third one, tries to justify his slackness by blaming it on the character of the master. He says, I knew that you're a hard man. That's rubbish. He's not a hard man. Yes, the, you'll notice the master, he accepts some of what he says, but he never accepts that. Yeah, I'm a hard man. No, no, no. He's not a hard man. Remember, these are slaves. A hard master wouldn't say, well done. He'd say, good, now go and get me dinner. This master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now come and enter into your master's happiness. Right? That's like inviting your fund manager to come and join you in retirement. Right? It's unheard of. No one does that. <laughs> Grace City, we don't serve a hard master. Yeah, he's a just master. He's a righteous master. So he's not going to overlook wicked servants who try to justify their own laziness by impugning his character. But he's not a hard master. He's a good master. In fact, I think the first two servants knew just how good he was and therefore couldn't wait for him to return. You know, I reckon they loved serving him. But what they were really looking forward to was when he came back. I think they knew just how good he was. Why do I say that? Well, think it through. What does it cost the master to purchase these slaves? 
The parable never tells us, but the gospel does. Because Jesus tells this parable two days before he goes to the cross to pay the ransom price for people like you and I. At Grace City, the master bought us at the price of his own blood. Anytime you chafe against the idea of a slave being a slave, just remember that. Because the truth is we were never free. You're either a slave to Jesus or you're a slave to Satan. Satan is the heart master. Satan is the one who will seek to do everything he can to drag you into hell. Jesus is the good master who bought us with his blood. And so, yeah, I do think the last servant is supposed to be a warning against laziness. But I don't think we're supposed to therefore serve the master out of fear. No, serve the master out of love. And let that love fuel your hope, your desire, and your longing to share in that good master's happiness when he returns. Let me close. Uh, we began today by thinking a little bit about investing. For some of you, that's a major part of your life. It's your jam. You may be even quite good at it. Uh, but more important than being a good investor is being a faithful one. So please, guard your heart against greed and invest in a way that honours God. The thing is, when Jesus returns, he's not going to say to you, well done, good and faithful investor. But multiplying earthly wealth so you can hand it over to him on the last day is not the job he's left you with. He wants kingdom assets. And so if you are a good investor, and that will be some of you, Use that talent to fund ministries that see more people brought into the kingdom and then grown to maturity in Christ. Same goes for the rest of us, whatever our, so to speak, talents are. We've been entrusted with Jesus' wealth and he wants kingdom assets, not developed potential. And so at the end of the day, the words we want to hear are, well done, good and faithful servant. So repent of sin. Trust in Christ as your saviour and then serve him faithfully. Why? Because everything you have belongs to him. He's given you a job to do to increase the master's assets. And he is so good that one day he will call his faithful servants to enter into and enjoy his master's happiness. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, We thank you that we serve a good master. You have saved us. You have set us free from our bondage to Satan's sin and death. A master that did not want our joy, that did not want anything good for us. What's more, you've set us free at the price of your son's blood. And we thank you for that. And we ask that now, as his slaves, as servants of Christ, we would live our lives devoted to loving him, serving him, and heralding the good news of the coming kingdom, so that more might know and trust in him and experience life as it was supposed to be. In Jesus' name, amen.